I need to make uh, public announcements. Uh, I'm afraid to announce that we are not, in fact, the world's only real tennis podcast. Oh. I, have, I have found a real tennis podcast on YouTube, so apologies However, to... However, none, none of us... Right! Close it down! We don't need to How be here anymore! How popular could it really be? <laughs> so, uh, if you want to listen to a real tennis... A real, real tennis podcast, <laughs> go listen to A View from the Hazards. Oh, what a good name! That's a, a good, good name. name. It's a good name. Almost as good... <laughs> As speaking from ignorance, which is this podcast you're listening to now. Hello and welcome to Speaking from Ignorance. I'm Daniel, PhD student at University of Edinburgh studying astronomy. Hi, my name is Jack, I am a charity person doer, and I am a social mobility advocate. Sh- should, I, should I be clarifying that when I say charity person doer, it doesn't mean that I'm doing charity people, it means that I'm doing charity. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, really? I've been confused this whole time! Hi guys, I'm Sid, I'm also a PhD student, but in Heidelberg in Germany, also doing astronomy like Daniel. Uh, hi guys, I'm Sammy. I'm a high-energy particle physics doer, uh, which does mean what you think it means uh, <laughs> uh, at the University of Birmingham. And I am the uh, famed inventor, Frederick Hale Holmes, inventor of the first working electric light, which of course went up in the Souter Lighthouse at Southampton. I was really hoping uh, no. you were just going to say ceiling. No, no, once again, <laughs> that is me using my chameleoid acting powers to dis- with great effort, as you could tell, as well as panache and aplomb, to disguise myself. I, it is, in fact, me, Henry Holmes, uh, actor, raconteur, and according to my latest version of my CV, after-dinner speaker. <laughs> <laughs> and we have our guest today. I think yeah, I'm hi. it right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, hi, guys. So I'm Aisha Tamsin, and I work at the UK Met Office. I'm a climate science communicator. So, Daniel, you, you asked the question last week. Uh, I did, yes. So the question I asked was, uh, what are your best productivity tips? Because uh, listeners of this podcast will know that uh, I don't make it a secret that uh, my productivity has uh, nosedived in, in recent months. Something about uh, the world ending, I think. I, I suspect, at least. Have you, guys, have you guys been more or less productive during these unprecedented times? Oh, definitely less productive. Less. Definitely. Like, so much less. Because I've been more productive. Really? How unproductive yeah. were you before? That is my fault. Exactly. That's the real question. <laughs> no, it's because I spend an hour going to work and an hour coming back from work every day. And when I'm at work, I spend a lot of time actually, you know, like talking to people as well, like meetings and things. So the amount of work I get done is much more now than it was then, just because now I'm just at home. And I, even when like Zoom meetings and things are going on, I can still be working on the side. I've also found that even though my productivity for work uh, has like only slightly increased, my general productivity has skyrocketed. Because I've got more time to do everything now. Uh, like go outside? No, not that. <laughs> That's like a once a week thing, maybe. I mean... I think, I think for me, a lot of the productivity dip has just been, like, because I don't have that office environment, if I have something that, say, would be a, a five-second problem to ask someone else, 
Like, I can't just turn around and go like, yo, what's up with this? How do you do this? And they go, oh, it's simple, just uh, this. You know, now it's like a two-hour problem as I just, you know, think, okay, what do I have to Google to work out how to do this? Well, you say not being in an office environment. I have made an office environment. More importantly, though, I now have a keyboard tray. <laughs> On a, a good tip for productivity, if you're using a computer a lot, is get a keyboard you're comfortable with. So, for example, I use mechanical keyboards because I find them really easy to type on. Uh, but also, uh, what are they called? The chiclet keyboards, I think they're called. The ones that are usually on laptops, like MacBooks and things. Yeah, yeah. Um, like, you know, a good keyboard goes a long way. Uh, well, I mean, I would agree because my keyboard has stopped working and that has ruined my productivity. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, imagine. call me old fashioned, but I tend to need the, uh, the letters O, L and full stop. I guess that's not a letter. Oh, I don't what know. Do you Just be a bit more creative with your vocabulary. Use some different <laughs> punctuation. See, the problem String is, out the sentence. The problem is when you need ones. to spell the, the, the word Alice a lot, it does tend to hinder you. Well, maybe, Sammy, you know, in these times of brouhaha, what you need to do is rise to the challenge and steal your neighbor's keyboard. Uh, well, I've already done that, uh, but I wasn't sure which one I'd like, so I took all 17. Okay, does anyone have any actual good productivity tips? Because I don't. If I, if I did, I would use them. <laughs> yeah, well, okay. So I, I guess I can go again because I've, I've said that I've been more productive now. So I feel like I, I should yes. justify Sid, that. Seeing as you're the only one who is more productive mm. now yeah. than before. Well, again, it's because when I go to work, I'm mainly involved in meetings. It's yeah. I'm friends with a lot of my colleagues. So because we're all first year PhD students, or a lot of us, I go around and, you know, ask them for tips about, you know, things where I'm stuck, but also where I work, there's always something on. So there'll always be like, for example, planet and star formation meetings or just stars or galaxies and things like that. There's always like events to go to. And it's actually more, uh, it's less difficult to be distracted at home for me, just because now I'm at a desk at home and I don't have three meetings to go to, for example. Three optional meetings, but man, that talk would be really cool. Uh, right now, I have my desktop, and then I have my work laptop and also my personal laptop on the other side of this desk. So it's also easy for me to swap tasks really easy, uh, really quickly, which for me is important because I'm quite efficient when I work, but I can't work on one thing for uh, a long period of time. But yeah, have a good, have a good work space, working environment. That's a good productivity tip. Get yourself in that mindset. Yeah, I do have to say on the topic of meetings, I have a ton of meetings and now I actually get to do things during, so I can have like my home laptop over here and my work laptop over here and I can do things. So if someone says, oh, can you just send me the email with this, with this um, infographic on it? I can just send it during the meeting. I don't have to make a note, get back to my desk and then send it. I think I'm going to try and do that when I get back to the office, like take my laptop with me rather than making a list and then getting back to my desk and having to go through the list and remember what I wrote down. Uh, to be honest, even in um, an acting working environment, people bring laptops and stuff because actually as soon as you're not working on the floor, you just politely sort of take yourself out of the main rehearsal studio and then just do some other work that you could be getting on with. Yeah, because you do have work to do. And yeah, yeah. You would rather do it now while you're at work rather than at 7 p.m. when you're at home. Yeah, because, you know, a rehearsal day is often... Some, well, it depends on what time it starts, but normally you turn up about half seven. 
and then you finish at about half seven, so you go... Uh. Well, well, Holmes, you've been pretty busy, uh, like, recently, as we all know, so what, what have you been doing to keep productive? Um, well, I've, I found that the, the pr productivity... I've been much more efficient in terms of my editing productivity, because it's like you say, it's being out of that environment where all your colleagues are sort of friends, because... Um, uh, so before, when I was doing any sort of written work, I'd either be in the library or the green room of um, Italia Conti, my um, training institution, which in theory are sort of quiet, calm, reflective working places, but they're not because it's a, it's a drama school. So <laughs> people come in, and I must admit, I'm one of the worst for this, uh, distracting other people from their work, coming in and going, oh, what's this? Looking at the work and moving around and then, you know, maybe practicing a song for later, then learning you some You can view lines. Holmes's improvised song on his YouTube yes, channel. Yes, you can. <laughs> Where he distracts a bunch of people. But as in, it's not a... Um, it's not an environment that's conducive to doing lots of uh, the more sort of cer cerebral work that's associated with um, acting like, you know, script writing and uh, editing and things like that. So I found actually this environment much more conducive to that. Um, and because one of my housemates isn't here, I actually often sit in his room and use his desk and write because then there aren't the distractions of my own room. Yeah, I think the uh, point about working environment is very important because... Uh... I found that I'm very easily distracted now that I'm back at home, uh, especially since it's a place where I'm not used to working that much. Uh, whereas in the office, I'm I can get sort of focused in the zone, especially when everyone else around me is also working. Yeah, I'm the same. Yeah, so I I, I would feel that way I think at work, but I don't share an office with anyone. But I have people working on. You have your own office. Yes. Yeah, oh this guy has got his own office. Top dog. Deutschland über alles. But, but my, so my supervisor works right next to me. I'm still motivated to work, but I'm not surrounded by people working, uh, if that makes sense, like in, in the same room. Uh, and I feel uh, also I'm more distracted by people than by things. So I can work in front of my um, desktop or whatever and have YouTube videos and things going on and still get work done at the same time just because it's not as distracting to me as if there was something going on in the office. Because I, I was in a shared office at Exeter over the summer, and I found that any time someone began talking, I would immediately just lose all focus on my work. Because wow. uh, we're in, in, at the Met Office, we're in one big open plan office. The whole Hadley Centre, the whole Climate Science Centre is one big open plan space. So we have however many six or seven spaces and ours is actually one of the quieter ones you can still hear people talking but ours is one of the quieter ones if you go downstairs to where the comms team is sitting then it's really it's quite loud and there's people talking and like discussing ideas and meeting areas a kind of open plan with the rest of everybody's desks i would never get anything done i wouldn't get anything done i so <clears throat> i don't know because i think the idea is cool because it really promotes discussion especially yeah. in an environment like you say communications where that's important to you know Make sure your idea is good by talking to people about it. But yeah, that for me would be too distracting. Oh yeah, to it depends any. a lot on who you're sitting with. Like I used to sit next to two people who obviously I won't name, who really talked a lot. They were really loud and they were constantly talking very loudly across the desk to each other. And I didn't really agree with all of their opinions about what they were talking about either. So I'd just sit there sort of fuming really quietly in my head. <laughs> Then I moved, and now I'm sitting with my team, and I like all of them, and they don't talk too much, so it's fine. But it does depend where you're sitting. Yeah, um, I I am a habitual overworker, 
So the, the whole coronavirus thing for me has kind of encouraged me to overwork more, which has been like something which I've been really pay, paying attention to, making sure that... Can you sort of I'm define not... what you mean by overwork? Do you mean like more hours in the day or like working weekends or... I, well, more, more hours mostly. Um, okay. So like even, even pre-coronavirus, I, I would stay in the office pretty late. But yeah, I'm trying. I'm trying to, to pay attention to that more, and I think it's more important now um, because a lot of the things which you would not or I would normally do to like de-stress, as in like going out, you know, speaking to, to friends, and I don't know, going to a salsa bar, those sort of things. Going Russian dancing. Going Russian <laughs> dancing. They, they aren't really like available, right? So it's really easy to get bogged down, to get tired, um, and when you're bogged down and tired. Um, you aren't going to, to, to work as efficiently. So I think it's really important to really make sure, you know, when it's time to tap out, you do have to tap out because otherwise tomorrow morning you're going to be shattered. Yeah. That's why I've been on a break for the last uh, six weeks. Nice. Yeah, yeah, same, Sammy. Just like Daniel, two months. Sorry, only six weeks? Oh, man, I've been on a break <laughs> ah, for 12. Rookie numbers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Ten weeks over here. Yeah, so I, I take a lot of breaks. But I take, like, a break pretty much every hour. A short one, like, you know, five, ten minutes. Oh, no, no, no. I do a, a, an hour-long coffee break every hour. Uh, at least. <laughs> yeah. Every ten minutes, I take an hour-long yeah, break. Yeah. <laughs> no. Uh, I'm also, like, sometimes you just get in the groove and you're like, okay, well, I don't want to take a break right now. So I'm going to work for another, like, 15 minutes. But I think it's important to pay attention to your own mind when you're working and, you know, take those breaks when you need to take those breaks. Like, don't force yourself into the overdrive zone. Well... Aisha, I, I feel like you're a, you're a fairly, I don't know, I feel like you're a very <laughs> unusual um, example of someone who's like incredibly productive. Mm. My main thing was that I, it took me until fourth year of university to learn the work smart, not hard. Obviously, hanging around with you guys for the whole of the degree. Was not a good influence. <laughs> <laughs> Well, however, say, we, we did teach you to not work hard. What I was going to say is yeah. I would spend so much more time working on stuff than you and we would all get the same outcome at the end. But what happened to me actually <laughs> was in my fourth year, I got quite sick and I couldn't. So I was working part time at the Met Office one day per week. I was ill and it was my master's year of university. I was like, I cannot do things the way I've been doing them these first three years with working really hard, making like even since GCSE, I would make these meticulous notes. I have this stack of hundreds of pieces of paper of GCSE notes and IB notes. I was like, I cannot do this anymore. And that's when I started working, working smart and just learning the things I needed for the exam and learning them to the extent that I needed and tapping out at the end of the day. If I hadn't finished something, I would still stop at the end of the day and rest. And I actually did the best I've ever done in fourth year. I think I wouldn't have got my first if I had not got sick because I would have kept working the way I had been working before. And I don't think I would have done as well in my fourth year exams. Yeah, Aisha, you brought up a good point with like, with the fourth year changing your work habit. Because I found throughout university, I was also meticulously taking notes, not to your degree, but also <laughs> meticulously taking notes in first and second year, where I wouldn't print out lecture notes. I would instead go into the lecture and take my own notes. And it basically took until third year or halfway through third year where I realized this is just a waste. What I should be doing is when I go into the lectures, I should be listening to what the lecturer is saying and then like print out the notes and then annotate them with what the guy is saying. And there's a certain lecturer, Sammy's tutorial lecturer, 
who <laughs> told me that because he would just sort of speak and he was uh he was a really good lecturer Frankly, i don't um, know what you guys were doing there <laughs> yeah yeah uh unfortunately he was at times uh quite difficult to understand um but it was it was the sort of thing where he would have all of his notes up on the slides perfectly and then wouldn't really look at them and would just talk about the subject that he was really passionate about and explain everything in great detail but he wasn't able to put all of that information on the slides so what you'd have to do is there's no way you're going to copy out all that information on the slides and hear him out so either you listen to the lecture two or three times or you just print the slides out actually i think he gave the slides out in that uh, lecture if course which might have been why if you're talking um, about qm2 then yeah yeah yeah, yeah. okay yeah, yeah. So he gave the lecture slides out, and then you just, you know, you'd actually listen in the lecture. And that taught me a lot yeah. about... I think I do remember it was Harry, who, for listeners, is another physicist who's not in this podcast. But I remember looking at the way that he went through his notes. I think it was for QM2, actually, with his black felt-tip pen. Harry stressed us out so much. <laughs> Every single exam season... Well, it was Matt and Harry, the two people who stressed me out the most. Oh, Harry stressed Matt me out so much. Because I stopped caring. <laughs> if we're talking about stressful exam season story, I'll always remember uh, coming back and seeing Jack after the uh, Easter holiday. And uh, just, you know, having the casual catch up, talking about, you know, oh, how do you feel about statistical quantum mechanics? He's like, oh, you know, actually, I feel surprisingly good about that. Okay, how do you feel about quantum mechanics too? I don't know, it's hard, but, you know, I, I think I might be getting the hang of it. How do you feel about galaxies? About what? Yeah, good times. Oh, oh, fantastic. (laughs) Yeah, no, but it's an interesting, like, saying, work smarter, not harder, because it almost sounds, like, really condescending, but it... And and it's it's really difficult to explain, because it sounds really simple, and you think you understand it, but it really takes going through the work hard phase to realize, really oh, does. wait, I, what this just means is how am I actually going to learn this uh, and then do that? It's that, it's that age old saying of that, that 20, sorry, 80% of what you do is trash, right? I've never heard that. That age old saying. 80% of what you do is trash. I, I think it's phrased in a more positive light, usually, where it's like only 20% of uh, what you do is productive instead of 80% of what you do is trash. I don't know. I think you're being a bit optimistic. Um, I was going to say that um, day, like, sorry, morning people are kind of associated with being like hyper productive, whereas I, I can't see you, Usher, as like someone who is hyper-productive, but is also like an extreme night owl. I was an extreme night owl, so it's hard to change a bit now that I have a job, which is nine to five. But back when I was at university, I would get up around midday. I would spend a few hours doing the things that needed to be done during the day, like going for a run or calling people. And then in the evening, I would have dance classes or something along those lines. I'd have dinner. Everyone else would go to bed around 10 or 11 o'clock. I would start work and I would usually finish sometime around 5 or 5.30 in the morning. Oh my God, that would kill me. Yeah, but for me, it's just about being busy. As long as I keep busy, then there's not time to not be productive. If that makes sense? Like at university, I was... Sounds horrible. I was always really busy and it meant that I didn't have time to waste time not working. See, I I think for me, I've got to constantly be trying to find new hobbies so that I have something to do when I'm not working. Otherwise, I just stop working and then just burn out because I have nothing to, like, take my mind off something. 
Look, this I is just my justification of why I bought two new hammers, some brass, and some uh, ultra abrasive <laughs> polishing material yesterday. Okay, this is. <laughs> I just need to justify it to myself. I feel like this was Jack's tactic as well. I feel like Jack, like you didn't do this as much at university, but now you're <laughs> always doing this stuff. <laughs> what is this? Slander? You didn't do much at university, Jack. Apparently, <laughs> I was hard working. I'll have you know. <laughs> You know what, Aisha? I actually feel like I've taken a lot of inspiration from like you and James recently, Aww. who just always seem to be going out and doing things. Um, and I think it was when, when I when I entered the, the the working world, I I kind of started to realize that I'd spent a lot of my university years just just burnt out, right? And that's that was kind of the reason why I was such such a bad student, right? Because I would just try and spend so many hours like staring at books, but it yeah. just wasn't my way of learning. Yeah, but yeah, it's the sort of thing where, you know, you can you can stare at the textbook for hours and not get anything in just because that's not how you learn. It's the worst form of procrastination because if you're going to procrastinate, yeah. at least have fun. So, like, yeah. do you know what I mean? <laughs> so no, then no, you can come no. Back that's, and go, that's a, that, that is a capricious <laughs> level. Uh, <laughs> but genuinely, genuinely, if you're not going to do your work, don't be guilty about it while you're procrastinating. Be guilty about it afterwards <laughs> and go, well, at least it was fun. At least I got something from it. Now, what the fuck do I have to do? Yeah, no regrets. Procrastinate in a productive yeah. way. I, I might actually have one productivity tip that's actually semi-useful uh, that's just come to me, which is, uh, I mean, everything else I said at this point has been garbage, but this is kind of like the tip. Sometimes you just got to wait for uh, if you've got a problem that you're dealing with and you need a creative solution, sometimes you just need to do something else and wait for the answer to come yeah. to you. I couldn't sleep last night and it was 5 a.m. and I suddenly realized why my histograms were looking kind of swanky. So I just opened up my laptop, changed a few things, set it to run again. And I'm like, this isn't healthy, but it's productive. With regards to what you're saying, Sammy, like it, it does remind me of that ancient Chinese proverb we were talking about. 80% of what you do is garbage. Yeah, so we've gotten a few productivity tips. N number one productivity tip, have a good work environment. Number two... Good work-life balance. Well, yeah, number two was work-life balance. And number three, sleep on the problem. Or at least go do something else. Uh, so bearing in mind that those are three or four productivity tips, uh, and 80% of everything is trash. So let's wrap up this section and move on to the next section, which hopefully will be less trash. Uh, so yeah, we've got an expert in today, right? Uh, Henry Holmes on the topic of acting. So uh, he's, he's never been I wouldn't say I'm an expert. However, Aisha is an expert, or at least uh, has more expertise than the rest of us in climate change communication. Yes, I work, I work at the Met Office, which is based in Exeter, um, Met Office Hadley Centre. And yes, as you said, I'm a climate science communicator. So basically, my job is to take the complex science that is produced by scientists at the Hadley Center and try to communicate it to the general public and to members of the government. So you have to really simplify it. You really simplify it down. Well, you have to make it short because they're really busy. You just don't have time to, to waffle. Really busy. That's an interesting way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's interesting. You have to communicate in very different ways. So obviously with the MPs, you want to keep it really short, bearing in mind that your MP may not have any science background whatsoever. And you might be talking about quite complex scientific concepts and you have literally two thirds of a page to get it in. And maybe half of that will be your summary, your policy relevance, your media relevance. So for the actual paper, you have maybe a few hundred words to get an entire paper in. 
and that's quite quite challenging. Yeah, that sounds it's, really tough. It takes a lot of time to. It used to take me honestly days and weeks to get cover sheets done. You, you get faster at it. So I broke my record um, this week. I did one in two and a half hours. So I was really proud of that. So is that is that you doing one paper? Yeah, that's me. And that's, get yeah, to. getting the paper, reading it, highlighting, writing the cover sheet, and then sending it off to the scientist to check it. So I've got a really basic question, just for maybe people who don't know, but what is the Met Office? Like, what do they do? So the Met Office, so the UK Met Office is the meteorological office. And a lot of you might know it as somewhere you get weather forecasts from. So we do have that. We have a big section of the Met Office that does weather. But we also have a really big section that looks at climate. So longer term weather, basically. Um, And we work very closely with a lot of government departments. So we're funded actually by government department space and DEFRA, so obviously we work very closely with them. Um, Then we also do things like um, making models of, uh, let's say, road surfaces and what's going to happen when it rains and giving advice to uh, Department of Transport, that kind of thing. It's quite a a varied um, organisation. Um, when you were saying about you have to you have to write briefings for MPs before, do, do you have a specific assigned list of MPs and are you told what their previous science background is so you can sort of pitch it at an appropriate mm-hmm. level? Or do you have just a, a briefing where they go, oh, you have to write for an MP, so you have to assume nil science knowledge? Yeah, so all we know is that it's going to Bayes and DEFRA and we don't know who's going to read it. The idea is that anybody in Bayes or DEFRA should be able to read it. So you do have to assume no science background whatsoever you can't even use the word uh, radiation oh my gosh <laughs> <laughs> so you have to you have to really really condense things down um it takes a while to get the hang of yeah well it's because it's like because colloquially radiation isn't a good thing <laughs> exactly. yeah right it's like it's a very badly yeah, connotated term think of nuclear radiation exactly uh, yeah <laughs> i like the idea that you write radiation in a report and they think chernobyl's gonna happen <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but then the other half is then we communicate to the general public, which is just a completely different ball game. Because with the MPs, at least you know that they care. Like, it's their job to care. They have to read they it. Ha- they're supposed to read it, at least. <laughs> you don't have to worry about making it engaging. You just have to make it factual. Whereas with the general public, you have to. there's no reason they should care about this stuff unless you make them. And so you really have to... It takes a while to decide who your audience is and what they care about and how you should, for lack of a better word, pitch your 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 story if you like as a as a scientific organization we need to stick to the science and we can't use emotive language and all of that kind of stuff so um at the moment i'm rewriting a whole bunch of websites page basically the whole climate science section of the website i'm rewriting do you do you have to work with uh sort of marketing experts with regards to that just because, you know, you, you want it to reach a, a broader base as possible, I presume. It's interesting you should say that. I actually recently got in touch with a really cool group called Climate Outreach. And uh, so they do climate communications and they have this side project called Climate Visuals, which is awesome. I love it. And they have these sort of seven key principles of, of communication. So it's things like use real stories and and focus on local impacts. The one that I found really interesting was don't use protest imagery because people don't associate well with protesters, um, which I found really interesting. What does that mean, sorry? What do you mean by protest? So in- protest. Protest, in- protest, sorry. So like, oh, pro- so like Extinction Rebellion or like the Friday climate school strikes, which is interesting because I always found those images really emotive and they really like, they really hit home for me. I don't know if it's, I don't know what you guys think. I don't know. If- I think it's possibly a, a generational divide and an association with protest. 
So I just wanted to ask you, you said like you've got the, the, the MP side and the public side, like what, what ratio is it that we're talking? Is it mostly for the public or is it mostly for MPs? It's pretty 50-50. It depends on... So my team is about five or six people big and we all have different focuses. So I do more of the general public side just because of the way jobs ended up being divided up. And two of my colleagues do a lot more of the government side. But it's it's kind of a 50-50 thing. Our aim is to communicate to everybody. So how do you communicate effectively to the uh, different demographics? Because you said you don't use like protest imagery Mm. um, was one of the big things, like use local events um you know keep it real but let's say that you had to give like a 20 minute presentation to uh, a group just of the general mm. public like of all it could be all ages yeah. like how would you go about um like what are the key points to keep in mind that is a really interesting question because that is many 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 people's entire phds and sort of lives work so that's a really big question that but um yeah, if you could just answer it in a, like, a, a few sentences, please. I mean, that is your job, summarizing <laughs> people's PhDs in a, so that the general public can understand. So oh, yeah, exactly. That, yeah. <laughs> well, the main thing to emphasize with climate change is that um, people find climate change a very difficult thing to think about because it's, um, it, A, is far away. So your, your emissions of greenhouse gases, for example, will not necessarily affect you. They might affect some community out in some other country. And also, um, it's not seen as an immediate threat. So again, your your emissions. I don't know. It's pretty hot. It's getting pretty hot, guys. <laughs> uh, we're, it's, we're reaching a nice we're reaching a nice level now. We've got some oh, yeah. of the uh, France weather. The rest of the world's screwed, but we're fine. <laughs> oh no! I mean, let me say, we are definitely seeing the impacts right now, one hundred percent. But that's not the way people perceive it. So the main thing that's kind of this five five key points of communicating climate change, if you like. Um, which is is meant to kind of get everybody on board, regardless of who they are. So the first one is that the climate is changing. So we have data that says the climate is changing. The second one is the changes are due to people. So it is man-made climate change. It's not a fluctuation in the sun. Um, it's not that the earth is moving closer to the sun. It's nothing like that. It's Sid, you can confirm this, right? <laughs> I, I, as as a as a summer solar you, you physicist, you can confirm this, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, the second one is it is people. Uh, the third one is that we are already seeing the changes. The fourth one is that the changes are negative by and large. There are some positive ones, um, but by and large, these changes are all going to be negative for humanity. And then the fifth one that you have to end on is that there is hope that we can change it. Because what we're seeing a lot of now, initially our problem was climate deniers saying oh, climate change isn't happening, it isn't man-made, uh, therefore we shouldn't do anything. Now we're seeing this completely opposing camp which is saying oh this is happening and it's too late yeah i think it's the same people honestly yeah, <laughs> yeah. i think yeah they've switched from okay we, we can't argue it's not happening anymore so let's say it is but you know we definitely can't do anything about it so you have to end on that last point if there is hope there is something you can do i.e you do need to take action like that's really important so so what is something just the average person could do overthrow capitalism uh, sorry. Oh, <laughs> God, thank God you said it. It wasn't me. I was waiting. <laughs> sorry. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, go ahead. Well, I mean, there are there are always the personal things you can do. So, cutting meat out of your diet as much as is possible. Don't fly. All those kind of things to reduce your carbon footprint. But I, I do think the biggest change you can make is political vote for a party that you think will implement the right changes. So, for example, coming out of coronavirus, who do we think is going to implement the most green recovery? Or don't vote. 
you know? Just, you know, rebel. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Revolution. Yeah, yeah. Revolution, you know? <laughs> Yeah, and then the other thing is just educate yourself. Be able to have a conversation with people about climate change and know your stuff and be able to have these conversations. If you go talk about something, you know, you, it's not possible to really care about it. If we get everybody talking about it, which is happening more now, then it's easier for people to actually engage with it. So just, you know, read books, watch educational videos. There's a lot of great stuff out there. Do you have any recommendations? There's a really good YouTuber called Simon Clark who makes... 10 minute long videos he's he went fantastic. to exeter as well didn't he yeah you're repping he did exeter, but he yeah. yeah he went to exeter he's for his phd i think so that's really cool and he follows me on twitter that was like the, the most exciting twitter moment i've ever had he followed <gasps> me a few months ago so that was great nice. there's him there's a website called um carbon brief which is where i did um my internship last summer they're like a climate journalism group they're really cool um i mean you could always head on over to the met office website if you wanted and there's a lot of really good books coming out now. I did just read a really depressing one called The Uninhabitable Earth, which taught me a lot, but it was really, really depressing. Don't don't read that. Don't read that. One. I think the, I mean Point five is maintain hope. I think it so is don't read that. It's important to learn stuff, but that one that one was really depressing. It was like we're basically all gonna die and there is no hope. So it, it sounds like Pandora's box, you know, you open it and all the despair and stuff comes out, but then you've got to you've got to make sure you open it that second time so the hope comes out. Yeah, exactly. really going, well, we might as well give up and die. <laughs> like, like a... Yeah, well, I mean, I don't know what your guys' thoughts are on climate change. Well, I do. I do have to say one thing that always really frustrates me is is when there is a focus on individual action rather than systemic change yeah exactly because i, I remember mm -hmm. i was at sure. i was at a, a a talk and there was the the like head of bp and you know he's talking about how we all need to make individual changes to help the climate and you know it's an important thing to do you know for all of us to come together and i'm like yeah but you're the one with the most power to solve this right now you know <laughs> yeah. you, you are the head of bp like i i, I can turn the lights off and cut down my meat consumption and, you know, not have three kids and all that. But you're the head of BP! Uh <laughs> I mean, it is interesting on the note of what can personal action do. It's difficult to say this whilst trying to keep up the hope message. But obviously during coronavirus, people haven't been driving as much, haven't been flying, people have been staying at home. And so a lot of people thought, oh, this is a really good chance to see... Dolphins well, are back in Venice. <laughs> Dolphins are back in Venice. People thought, oh, this is a really good chance to see could happen if we all acted a bit more responsibly and the answer is that uh, we are expecting carbon dioxide levels in the atmosphere to rise by 2.8 parts per million this year instead because of all of this all of these huge lockdowns that we've seen all of these huge changes instead we're going to see a rise of 2.7 parts per million so that's it Ooh. oh god what, just for, just for <laughs> like, context what were the rises do you know what the rise was like in previous years? Uh, I know that we're seeing a bigger rise every single year and that this year is still going to be a bigger rise. It is projected to still be a bigger rise than last year, even with all of these changes. Yeah, but that also could be like a carryover effect. It will, I, yeah. Because it's a very it complicated... Will. But just to, yeah, just to have at home that we, we now have atmospheric concentrations of carbon dioxide well above 400 parts per million and that all of these lockdown changes have reduced our emissions by 0.1 part per million. So I completely agree with slightly systemic change as well. Individual actions are great and they will make a difference. They definitely will, but need something bigger. Could you um, give us some idea of what the, the rise would be if it was, say, like natural climate change during one of the climate cycles of just the planet? Because I know yeah. it's slower, but... So what we've seen now... So the rise that we've seen is 
well, it's a faster than we've ever seen, and we have the levels of carbon dioxide we have in the atmosphere now are higher than they have been at any point in the past eight hundred thousand years. It's a long time. That's <laughs> quite a long time ago. Well, what about eight hundred thousand and one uh, previous years? You know, back in that really hot year, so it can't be real. So I mean, CO2 levels may have been higher in the past, but the main thing is that just it would have happened so much slower. Yeah. Mm. Natural sinks of carbon would have had time to adapt and to change. It's just happening so quickly now that we've never seen something like before. Yeah, you know, I, I feel like the news is, is kind of scary these days because um, obviously this week, I'm not sure if you guys have seen it yet, but um, there's been like plagues of, of locusts just eating up crops. But I I, I hear that that's, that's driven by, by climate change, right? Um, I wouldn't so... be surprised. I haven't heard, I yeah. haven't heard that one well, specifically, but I wouldn't be surprised. I mean ecosystems are changing because of temperatures and precipitations changing. So. I guess my, my, my point is that it's it's those communities that very far far, far away from us which are suffering the, the, the most. Yeah, absolutely. Um, who, who should be responsible for, for you know, taking control that of this situation? That is a really good question. So that is one of the really big questions in the annual Conference of the Parties um, talks. So every year, um, delegates from all over the world get together. I think it was 300,000 last year, all get together and have this big meeting, Conference of the Parties, and they talk about climate change. And they set goals of, okay, I'm going to reduce my greenhouse gas emissions by this percent or by that number um, to try to meet all of the targets that we set. And it's a huge thing right now about responsibility. That was actually one of the really big points last year, which was developed countries saying, okay, you big developing nations like China and India are causing a huge amount of emissions right now and you need to stop. And these developing nations saying, well, if we want to become developed enough to be able to survive climate change. So, for example, India, Bangladesh, saying if we want to have um, enough money to be able to build the flood defenses that we need, we have to develop right now. And we need to do it with fossil fuels because we need to do it fast. As you said, the poorest countries are the most likely to be hit by the most extreme weather events, by the changes in temperature. The UK actually is the least likely or will be the least impacted country in the whole world because oh, of wow. where we're situated and because of our level of development. So we're in the right place. <laughs> but no, it is a really big question. It's a really political one. And there is no there is no right answer. It's a really difficult one. The, I mean, what I personally think should happen is that developed countries should be giving money to developing countries to subsidize a green economy so that they can develop in a green way. But that obviously... That obviously is a big political decision. So I guess energy uh, is a good like, segue here. But what, what are your sort of thoughts on renewable energy? And, you know, what, how do you think is a good way to achieve the dropping of fossil fuels? I think that we actually have most of the technology that we need. I can't remember the numbers, but I think we already have quite a lot of the technology that we would need to replace fossil fuels. So the amount of money that goes into fossil fuel subsidies... I can't remember the numbers, but it is ridiculously high. If that money went into the subsidizing of renewable technologies, I think that we would we would be able to cut fossil fuels out. Well, not easily, but I think we would we would be able to get there. So in the UK, I think we've now gone two months without burning coal. I don't know if you guys saw that. It was in the news yeah. a week ago. Obviously, I should what? mention burning coal doesn't mean we're not burning other things that are, you know, 
No, no, this was this was one of the few things that the BP guy kept going on about. He was like, "We've completely stopped. Uh, we've we've closed down all of our major coal power stations. We're all on gas now. It's way better." I'm like, <laughs> you realize that's still a problem. That clean, <laughs> pure gas, you know. So, Aisha, what do you think is like? Because if we have all of the technology there, obviously it's you know political and economic right now. It's kind of be like it's it's beyond the science sort of thing. Um, what do you forecast within like the next five ten years that it like renewable energy will look like? So, what do you think is the future uh, in that? Interesting one. So, obviously, as you said, I um this is like more of a political question than a science question. I mean, I, I am seeing the price of renewable energy dropping fairly rapidly, and I think so, I think very soon, if not already, it will just become the the economically sensible decision to use renewable energy. Personally, I think it already is. Some of this energy is literally free. <laughs> you, yeah, you buy the solar panel one time, and then you've got the energy forever. I mean, it just makes sense. I think we ju- we just need people to to have some kind of political drive to get there. I think if we can start that ball rolling, I think it'll be pretty easy to get it. I, th- I, th- yeah. I, I, I think what you need is you need a lot of, well, like strong subsidies for these sort of things. So, so Aisha, um, going back to the actual climate change thing, not away from energy again, what are some important metrics for measuring the impacts of climate change on a global scale? So some that maybe you, you'll use scientifically, but also things that, you know, the average person can look at. So two yeah. different questions. So, so in terms of very... Uh, basic ones, quote-unquote. Um, a lot of them are just measurements of, of temperature, of changes in carbon dioxide levels. Um, so temperature, when we measure that, we tend to measure the near-surface temperature, so near to the top of the ground. The interesting thing for me is actually measuring changes in the ocean. So the ocean has a really high specific heat capacity. It takes a lot of energy into water to make it heat up. And actually, around 90% of the extra energy that humans are producing goes into the ocean. So when we say that global temperatures have already risen by one degree C, that's only that extra 10% of energy that's caused that rise. 90% is going into the ocean, which is crazy. Uh Uh-oh. Don't worry about the fish that have specific temperature requirements. Well, exactly. That's the thing is that the ocean is not used to changing temperature. The ocean has historically remained a very constant temperature, and it's now changing really, really fast. You mentioned, Aisha, that there's less people who are straight up denying climate change, um, and now there's like people who say there's no hope. But I still think there's a prevalence of people who doubt the human-induced climate change, or at least doubt that they can, again, that they can do anything about it, but it sort of like couples into one thing, uh, where it's still denying the evidence of climate change. But it could also be like they don't know. So... Why do you think there's still this almost like stigma? I think I there is definitely a distrust of scientists and that at a certain point people just don't want to, they don't want the evidence, they don't want to be proven wrong. They're very... That's very true. Anti- well, that's just, that's a very human, well, exactly. right? Exactly. I mean, it's very natural. You really can predict, there's a fantastic communicator, climate science communicator called Catherine Hayhoe, who, she's American, and she found a really big political divide between she puts um, Trump supporters, climate change deniers, people who deny vaccines, all like there's a really, really big overlap with um, those people and mm. your political group. What a strange coincidence. <laughs> well, it's the same way that it's the same way that you see a lot of videos now of people who are Trump supporters saying, don't wear a mask. The science is definitely not there for wearing a mask. It's going to reduce our oxygen that we can breathe. And there is no science behind that at all. What? It's become a politicized thing. It's become part of their intrinsic belief. 
that point, there's no more, there's no point in arguing from a stats and evidence standpoint. Like, that, you're not going to get anywhere with that. You have to make a moral case. So you have to find something that these people really care about and use that to empathize with them. So if someone lives on the coast, for example, say, hey, have you noticed that when you go fishing, you don't have to walk as far to the pier anymore and that the fish are smaller or whatever? And, and it's something they're interested in. Would, would you say it's like a, a faith-based belief? It's just something yeah. where they just go, this is true and I hold this to be a fundamental But I think it goes yeah. deeper than that, right? Because because most people don't like being proven wrong. That's sort of what puts scientists outside of like, the normal. Mm. Well, I, I suppose people don't like being proven wrong, but also pe- people are... Well, I don't know, maybe I'm having too much faith in people. But surely they're aware that they're that certain people devote their lives to having expertise in certain um, subjects and fields and they should maybe trust and defer to their judgment on that particular issue. Yeah, well, I don't know. I don't. Again, I don't know what the average person is experiencing, so I don't really want to comment on them, but I think it's more important to note that people like that exist and ostracizing them and like labeling them as, you know, morons or whatever. Isn't, I don't think that's going to help. It's yeah. what we have to do, like you said, is make moral exactly. cases. And get well, was, them to understand the ramifications yeah, of what's going on. Well, that was a really on. interesting... Uh, when did this happen? It was 10, 15 years ago. Um, Pope Francis actually came out as this really, really strong supporter of climate action. And the reason that he was convinced is that a scientist went up to him and he had like a two-minute sort of parking lot pitch to deliver his message about why Pope Francis should care about climate change. And he had prepared a whole bunch of stats and he just kind of mind-blanked and forgot them. And so instead he went for a more personal... Climate change is going to hit the poorest people the worst. It's our duty as, as humans to respect our fellow humans, look after mankind. And that's the message that Pope Francis took forward. And that seems to cut across all kind of political barriers that appeals to people's yeah. faith. And it was saying, listen to the cries of the earth was a lot of his campaign slogans and respect your fellow man and look out for those who are less fortunate than you. And that resonated with people because it was coming from, A, a figure that they already uh, sort of, um, trusted the Pope, but B, it was it was cutting out all political, um, all political connotations, all science. Yeah. It was just talking about morals. It's come together as humanity, not come together as the right exactly. or the left or as Christians or whatever. It's we're all like this is a problem we all face. Mm. Exactly. I've got one thing to sort of close out the discussion on a bit of a higher note. Aisha, you're like just to bring it. Back around, you're a climate science communicator in the Met Office. If somebody is listening to this podcast who wants to sort of follow in your footsteps, what would you recommend? I think there are a lot of fantastic climate science communicators that you should follow. So Simon Clark, Catherine Hayhoe, Tamsin Edwards, to name a few. Educate yourself. I think that is the most important thing. Um, and just engage with the science that's coming out now. I think climate science communicators are becoming a lot more vocal now, or at least this is what I'm seeing from Twitter, um, a lot less afraid of becoming political in their opinions and speaking out about controversial topics. I think it's a really good time to go and engage with climate scientists and with everything that's happening in the world, with Greta Thunberg and with the Fridays for Future strikes and stuff, there's a lot you can get involved in. So just go for it, meet people, get involved in stuff. Before I give the question for next week, I'd like to tell you where you can find us. We are on Anchor FM, Spotify, and YouTube primarily, but most other podcasting services as well. Not iTunes. No, not iTunes. <laughs> you can find us on Twitter, at FromIgnorance. 
And you can send us any queries and questions, uh, if they're a bit more long form, at speaking.ignorance at gmail.com. And we're also on Facebook now, right, Jack? Yep. Uh, speaking from a new facebook page courtesy of jack so find us there as well and the question for next week is what is something you love but everyone else hates that's all for this week folks see you next week